thank you very much, Dorothy. One of the great advantages of being black is that when you blush, nobody can notice it. <laughs> you blush me tonight, then thank you very much. The story goes back to my great-grandfather's postulate. He was born a slave in Jamaica, and after becoming free, he dreamed that if he had a son, if he had a son, he wanted that son to study, to have a high school or a higher education. <clears throat> and in effect, he had a son, James Duncan, and he suggested that he study. And uh, James Duncan, a rebel as he was, said, yes, I will, but I want to be an engineer. Now, to be an engineer at that time was to be an engineer in a steam motor, which was the top of technology <coughs> at that moment. So my great-grand said, you're crazy. Where am I going to get the money for, from to pay for you to become an engineer? Studies to be a nurse or to be a teacher, something that's cheaper, don't you keep... He said, well, if I can't study for engineer, I won't study. So my poor great-grandfather said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Panama, work on the Panama Canal, and so that I can pay your studies. That he did. Being on the canal in Panama, they were building the Panama Canal, he got sick from malaria. So he wrote to his son, his son saying, come and get the money before I die. Anyway, I leave it to Miss, Mrs. So-and-so. You can pick up the money with her. And of course, at that time, you know, there were these super jets flying all around. Only that they went by sea very slowly. And so by the time he got to Jamaica, his father had died. And um, the lady said she had no idea about any money. So he was there, stand, locked in, Jamaica, in uh, Panama, not knowing what to do with no money at all. Then he remembered that he had a, brothers, a brother in Costa Rica. It was not exactly a brother. It was one of those people that grew up in his family as a member of the family. It was a neighbor. But he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Costa Rica. If I can make my way to Costa Rica, I can work and get my fare and pay my way back to Jamaica. And that was his plan. So James Duncan came to Costa Rica, and there was a lot of Jamaicans there working. These people, whether Jamaican and other Caribbean people, had come to Costa Rica to build a railroad. Costa Rica had been a very poor country during the colonial period. But at the very end of that period, they started exporting coffee growing coffee and exporting coffee. And so they needed to get the coffee out to Europe, and they had to take it all the way by ox carts down to the Pacific Ocean, sail all the way around the continent, all the way down to Chile, to get into the Atlantic Ocean. As I said, they were just building the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. And so the Costa Rican coffee was very expensive by the time it got to Europe. And so they needed this outlet to the Caribbean Sea. They used to call it the Atlantic Ocean, but it's not the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean because we didn't want to mix with those people from the Caribbean. No? So it was Atlantic. Atlantic is Europe. Right? So they had to get, they want to, so they decided to ask this gentleman from 
he was from Texas originally, but his, his brother, Henry Migskeet, had built the railroad over the Andes Mountain, which is a masterpiece of engineering at the time. So they went to ask him, ask him to come and build a railroad in Costa Rica. And um, he didn't come, but his nephew came. And they, that was the reason why you had so many Jamaicans and other people from people of Afri uh, Fafa, uh, African descent working in Costa Rica at that time. We were not the first black people in the country. There were people that came in the colonial time with the Spaniards, but these were the first coming from the West Indies in the modern time. So what the population had done was form a little Jamaica in the province of Limon. The language was English. The religion was Protestant. There were Anglican Church, Baptist, Methodist, and others that came in later. And they were part of the Circum-Caribbean, this group of this old greater Caribbean that goes all the way from South America all the way up to New Orleans, the people circulating all around this area. Um, I, uh, I was telling today the, the, to give you an idea of this, these connections that one of the major uh, musicians in, the in uh, Louis Armstrong's band, in Scatchmo's band, was born in Panama, grew up in Costa Rica, and ended up playing with Louis Armstrong in his band. Now, the first job that my grandfather got in Costa Rica was <coughs> operating the water tank. The train, of course, the train were, was uh, steam engines, so it had to stop and get water now and again. And that, for, unfortunate for the guy was the closest he got to be becoming an engineer. <laughs> he met Miss Elvira Moody, and they started a family, and eventually a small <coughs> cocoa cacao farm. And there came Eunice, which according to the American English is Eunice, but according to my Creole language is Eunice. And so Eunice was born in Costa Rica son of these two Jamaicans. She went to an elementary school, Spanish school in Estrada, in a time when no one wanted anything to do with the Spanish language. The other people used to say, in each county, you need two people that can speak Spanish. One to speak with the local authorities, and the second one just in case the first one is not around. <laughs> And that's all the Spanish you need. Now, one day, Mr. Rodolfo, Adolfo Robinson appeared in Costa Rica. He's what we, call, we used to call a pretty boy. A pretty boy. He was a baseball player, a jazz player, and all dressed up in white shoes and that sort of thing. My poor mother fell in love. <laughs> And he was of Barbadian ancestry, but Panamanian by birth. And um, a, this Barbadian had came, come to Panama the same way like we went, the, the, our people went to Costa Rica to work on the canal and the railroads. So from there comes my mother's eldest child, which is speaking to you today, tonight. <laughs> I was born in, is exactly in San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica. At a time when I was not supposed to be born there. At that time, you, 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 the people, women delivered their children at home. 
But I was giving problems to the world before I was born. So for that reason, my mom, poor mom, had to go to the hospital to have the baby. And that's the reason why I was born in the capital. But I am a Limonense, that is a Limonese. I'm from the province of Limon. And I grew up in the town of Estrada, a small village 25 miles away from the city of Limon. But my family considered themselves Jamaican. We grew up and lived with the myth of returning to Jamaica. My grandfather, my grandmother wanted no English in her house. There were three things that was prohibited in my house, linguistically speaking. She heard me speak imitating the sound of Spanish one day. I was about six years old. And I was listening to Spanish speakers, and I was going on as kids do, imitating Spanish according to me. And she heard me, and she said, come here, boy. Listen to me, and listen to me very carefully. I don't want to hear any bird language into my house, boy. No bird language into my house. Because bird language, she said, because Spanish, they speak with, they speak with the beak. It's an interesting linguistic observation. Right? For those who are, of you who are learning Spanish, I think you should remember that. It, it, you don't say, buenos dias, que tal, como esta usted, because that's not Spanish. Okay? You say, buenos dias, como esta. Okay? So it was an interesting uh, observation. So the no bird language into our house. The second thing I couldn't do is speak in the Creole, the local Creole English. Uh, that's bad English. You have to talk, you have to speak like Her Majesty. <laughs> so you can, and, and the third thing is you can, she didn't want any Yankee English in her house. <laughs> so don't come here with those cowboy foolishness. Don't come here with your water. Well, there's nothing, uh, water. Water. Uh, what do you mean, laugh? What's this laugh? Uh, laugh. You're laughing. <laughs> Not laughing, you're laughing. <laughs> and of course, I learned to write program with a double M-E and color with a U. So yes, they consider themselves Jamaican, British, right and they set up their own English school system. I went to English school for the first time very early, although my grandmother was the first person teaching me to read. And it was the British school system, British colonial education. But it, was, it served us the purpose. In the year 1927, for example, 81% of the men and 82% of the black men, black women were literate, as compared to 40%, which was the national average, 67% was, the, was the, the average of the capital, San Jose. And their level of education was higher, not only in comparison to the rest of Costa Rica, but to the rest of the country that they came from. They had an higher education than Jamaica, than Barbados, etc., etc. One of the reasons is that they traveled freely to the United States, back and forth, and to Cuba, and to all over the places. And of course, the only thing that they had to do if they wanted to come into the United States to prove that they could read and write. And so everybody went to school and studied, and they came to the United States. At that time, there was no restrictions. The uh, Caribbeans, West Indian Caribbeans, needed no visa or anything like that to come into the United States. Now, 
very important was my grandfather's library. This is very important. I mean, he ended up being a peasant working on the farms, but he had a library. I remember one day that he got the, um, the newspaper, the Gleaner, from Jamaica. And he sat down to, to uh, read the Gleaner and didn't went that day to get the crops. So we didn't sell the cacao that week. He, he was so enthusiastic well by the, he, was, he preferred to sit down and read. Uh, and I found in his libraries when I was 14 years old, he authorized me to get into his library. And I found, found uh, very interesting books, like books about the Ashanti Wars, which immediately I got interested <coughs> into that culture. I find things about the, uh, this is my translation, I don't know if it's exact in English, Richard the Lionhearted and the Round Table Knights. And I learned <laughs> in the books that my ancestor, the triumph in the Battle of Trafalgar over the Spaniards, I don't know what happened to me or to my ancestors, but <coughs> slightly different color. But anyway, we vanquish. I also found the Bible. I read Dante's Inferno. Uh, that I did hidden because he wouldn't let me read that book. <laughs> and um, of course, my school books included a bridge version of Shakespeare, Tennyson, another British poet. My writing started precisely associated with this library. Because then I started, after I learned about the 100 years war in Europe, or the 200 years war in Europe, I started playing. But I was alone. I mean, my, my, my two brothers was born much later. And so I started note, writing down to remember whether the French or the British or who was winning the war, according to my playlist. Okay? And, um, and that, so the library is very important. And another thing that was very important was Miss Rob. Miss Rob was a member, or a neighbor, and she used to read stories for me, Anansi stories. When I, my, the, the, the main road in my uh, town was the railroad. Uh, you have to travel by the rail, walk on the railroad to school and walk back, and you have to walk by Mrs. Rob's home. So she always called me when I'm coming over from school. She had me maybe give me something to drink and tell me a story. I'll read a story for me. Okay? And uh, one day Miss Rob said, um, I, my glasses are broken. And, so, and I just got this new book. Would you do me the favor to read the book and tell the stories to me, and the other way around. You take the book, read it, and every time you go by, you come and you tell me one of the stories. And I say, yes, of course. I took the book home, and I didn't know, even remember where I put it. I had no intention to read these stories. Um, but, and so every time I go by, Miss Rob would say, what about the story? I say, yes, yes, I'm reading the book, one of these days. And one day she called me and said, come here, sit down. I've been reading stories for you uh, uh, since you're a young boy. I've been reading stories for you. And now that my eyeglasses are broken, you can't even read that book and come tell me that I felt so shame that I went home and started reading the book. 
And every day I would go by Miss Rob and tell her a story. Some years later I thought, but this is a very funny thing. Her eyeglasses were broken. I see her reading the Bible at church with her eyeglasses. <laughs> he tricked me into it. But she got me to read and got me to tell stories. So writing was part of my playing. But I thought all the writers were dead. <laughs> because, of course, Tennyson was dead. Shakespeare was dead. Isaiah was dead. Jeremiah was dead. All the writers that I read were dead. So I, thought, I never thought that I could become a writer. Uh, never. Until later, when uh, one of my teachers asked me to write a little composition in Spanish, and I did that, after I went to Spanish school. Now, my whole world changed because of the Civil War of 1948. In 1948, there was a Civil War in Costa Rica. And um, before that Civil War, we were considered Jamaicans. We considered ourselves Jamaicans, and the Costa Rica, <coughs> Costa Rica considered us Jamaicans. Yeah. When, the start, when the war started, the government went through our communities saying, um, we need your help to stop this subversive group that want to take over the government. And so here's a gun. Said, no, but not, we're not uh, Costa Rica. Where were you born? In Zen. Oh, OK. Where were you born? Limon. OK. Where were you born? Estrada. OK. So here's your gun. But I'm saying I'm not Jamaican. You said you were born in Beeline. So here's your gun. So, but we're not. We're Jamaicans. Anyway, many of the men dressed up like old women. And others hide in the bushes because we didn't want to take part. We didn't even know why there was this civil war about. We didn't read. We couldn't understand Spanish. We didn't have nothing to do. We didn't know why these people were fighting each other. And so we didn't want to fight on their part. And so people just stayed away. Now, Jose Figueres won the civil war, or took over Limon, and did convince a few more to, to fight on his side. And, uh, but during the Civil War, my grandmother was sick, and she couldn't get to the hospital because of the Civil War. And by the time she got there, she died. Jose Figueres toured the area. Jose Figueres is the person who won the Civil War, right through the Caribbean coast with a message. He said to the people, speaking in English, which was very important for these Jamaicans, speaking to them in English, a Costa Rican president speaking to them in English, taking as a sign of respect. He said, um, the major I hear you saying you're going back to Jamaica. The majority of you cannot go back to Jamaica because you cannot go back to a place where you didn't come from in the first place. The majority of you were born in Costa Rica, so are you going back to Jamaica? Back to what you, what you mean back? And the older ones that come back, you can go back to what? You've been out of the country 40, 50 years? The ones you know is not there many, many. again. People have moved. I'm going to change the laws and make it easier for you to become Costa Rican. And the second thing he said is, I see you have your own school systems. I understand that you're interested in getting good schooling. We're going to change the educational system in this country. And there will be high schools and university education for everyone. So if you want your children to continue higher education, you have to learn Spanish. 
because there's no way we can have a parallel system for you in English. My grandfather, who was one of those not, not interested in me going to the Spanish school, after he heard the, the, the um, dissertation by the president, came home that night and he said, you heard what Sharty said? No, Sharty, the guy was, as if he was a short guy, right? Very short. So he said, you heard what Sharty said? You're going to school tomorrow. You're going to Spanish school tomorrow. So I had to go to school all day, half day to the English school and half day to the Spanish school. And that was where I began. The first day I spent, I had to share bench with my companion and I spent the time helping him. What's she saying? What's she saying? What's she saying? I couldn't understand a word in Spanish. Then finally the teacher got fed up with me and said, Callate, guachise. Shut up, guachise. <laughs> so I became guachise at school. Now, my grandfather, at that moment, when he decided that I was going to English school, Spanish school, somehow renewed my great-grandfather's postulate. But we then begin to have serious problems. For example, I remember at school discussing with my companion if Costa Rica and Jamaica engaged in a war, on what side would we be? In 1956, seeking a better education, my mother decided that we should move to the capital, move into the city of San Jose. And there, I should say, was my first experience with Latino racism. Fortunately, I, start, I, they, I wanted to be a, car, a carpenter, but they, there was no possibility in the city. So my mom enrolled me in a, a cabinet shop. So I learned to build furnitures. Now, the family was a big family. And um, some of the family members were terrible racist. And uh, others were not. And this was a great experience for me, because then I did not develop this idea that, oh, these Spaniards. We never call them white. We say Spaniards, Spanish people. And uh, when we want to be a little derogative, instead of Spanish, we would say Pana, Pana from España, the Pana people, Pana man, the Pana woman. Okay? And um, we, it, it, for me, it was very interesting because then I saw the diversity in the school, in the this family. Some of them that really loved me, and some that hated me. Uh, Doña Dora, which was the older lady, would ask every morning, send for me and ask me to go and buy some, I don't know, biscuits and so on. And when I come with it, she would sit me down at her table and we would have uh, coffee together every morning. And the older man, <laughs> the only time I see him doing anything at home was when he was washing my cup. He didn't wash my cup, he scrubbed it. Scrub it and scrub it and scrub it every time I use the cup. <laughs> So you can see that I had both extremes right there in the same family. And I think that was a good experience to understand that uh, there are sort of people in this world. Now in 19, I went to night school. I started going to school at night, working in the day and attending school at night. And in 1959, there was another unexpected and abrupt change with the death of my mom. 
And so I was left at the age of 19 with two brothers. We were not, I were, at that time, to be of age, you had to be 21. And with uh, their father, which was a person that was absolutely irresponsible. My father died when I was two years old, and my mom married again. And so there was a long period of struggling to keep in school, going in and out of the school, trying to keep studying. But I guess that in the very back of my mind, this postulate of my great-grandfather was still there. Had to become a professional. And I continued struggling. I got married, started having kids, ended up studying theology. I, was a, I went to the seminar there and studied theology for some time, became <coughs> a priest in the Episcopal Church, started having kids. And then I decided that that was not exactly my vocation. I started writing. I've been writing for 14 years old, but now by now I knew that not all writers were dead. <laughs> that it was possible for me to write and to be a writer. So I started writing and I went back to school, the National University, to study to be a teacher and gradually becoming a writer. As I said, the library, Miss Rob, and then a literary contest, a literary contest in the Spanish school, and then this guy Abdulio Cordero, which is for those of you who are going to be teachers or are teachers, it's important to be aware of the good or the bad you can do according to your attitude in relation to students. Uh, Don Abdulio was my teacher in the first year of high school. And he was not in the second year. And he came back in the third year. And he started recognizing people in the class. And he went on, oh, daddy, this is daddy. Oh, that's Andrea. Oh, that's Mila. And he went on. And then he skipped me <coughs> and continued. And I say, uh, racist guy. <laughs> I hate his guts. I admire him up to that moment. But you know, he, the guy skipped me. Are you going to tell me don't remember me? Uh, he left me to the last, and at the very last, he turned to me and he said, what about you, Quince? You still writing? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so I started writing. My first stories were with a little nostalgia, I guess, basically remembering Limon. And I also became an activist. My experience in San Jose, Costa Rica, I found so many, I listened to so many experts that went on a single trip to Limon and came back and wrote about the blacks in Costa Rica and about the, the people in Limon, etc., etc. No? And so I began with this idea. I started thinking about the possibility of using my pen as an arm to combat racism and as an arm to develop uh, or to, pro, uh, let's say, to promote black culture and black and awareness in my country. I remember the first time that I was in a spot, a good friend of mine at that time said, Quince, um, there will be a conference tonight on black culture. Would you, would you come? I want you to come with us. I said, yes, okay, I'll come. 
So, I went. When I came, there was a table, a panel. There were four people, four university professors, all white, or white Latino, all of them. And so my friend suddenly stand up when the thing was they were beginning and said, excuse me, professor, how is it you're going to talk about the black people in Costa Rica and there's no black people in the panel, no black person in the panel? He said, well, this is a university, uh, this is a university um, research. And, um, and he started giving an explanation. Then suddenly somebody else at the other corner, a Chinese, got up and said, yes, I too from, are from Limon. And I don't see why you should have a panel and the black people and, and you don't, and there's no black people. The same thing happened to us and I don't, and I don't agree with that. And then the man continued trying to explain. And then somebody else from the next corner stand up, personally, perfectly white young man, and said, yes, I too were from Limon, and I don't see why. And it went on like that for a moment. And, and then the man said, well, do we don't have any black people, to, any black person to do that. So my friend said, yes, we have a young writer here, Quince Duncan. He can do it. I said, have a seat. <laughs> And, of course, he had planned it. And he didn't say anything to me. <laughs> and so I had to go and sit on the table without knowing exactly what to say. But at that moment, in addition to hating my friend, <laughs> at that moment, I made a promise that I would be, that it would never happen to me again. That I will always know more about my culture and my people. And so I really start doing my homework from that moment on. My first book, uh, well, the first fiction book came out in 1970, but my first book on this matter, Blacks in Costa Rica, came out in 1972. The book was co-authored by with Don Carlos Melendez, who was the director of the history department of the University of Costa Rica. And things started. I get in, getting me more and more involved in responsibilities um, pertaining to combating racism and to promoting awareness and to letting people know about black culture in general. I had experiences with the liberation theologians, uh, with the third world theologians. I became a member of a the program to combat racism of the World Council of Churches. And I had to travel all over Canada. We toured Canada. We toured uh, Australia, many parts of Europe. And uh, because of my literary work, gradually the, in the United States, they began inviting me to come and speak about my work. After being a member of the program to combat racism, I became a member of the African Diaspora Project of the Michigan State University, with my colleague here was there at that time. And um, I served on that program for many years. And later, I was invited to become part of the uh, scientific committee of the Slave Root Project of the UNESCO, United Nations, and I served on that board for 12 years. 
And of course, I had to again travel all over the world. I became an educator almost by accident. I mean, that was after I decided that being a priest was not my vocation. The nearest thing to that I agreed was to become a teacher, and so I went back to the university and became a gradually teacher in high school and eventually professor in the university and director of the Latin American Studies, Latin American Studies Institute in Costa Rica, and a member of the Board of Trustees in the Universidad Nacional. I am now retired, and this last year they invited me to become the first um, presidential commissioner for Afro-descendant affairs in Costa Rica. In conclusion, I'm fighting, I've been fighting for a better world, and I'll and soonly so that we may have time to take a few couple of questions. I've been fighting for a, for a better world. Now, in Australia, when I was there, we had this tour through Australia. And the first day when the, I was received by the people, by the, the reporters, they were prepared to attack us. So, for example, there was a member of the team was from England. He said, "Where are you coming to do Australia?" They don't say Australia; they say Australia. Why are you coming to do Australia? Aren't you the your creator of this problem? The British, you are the English. You are creator of the problem. There's, is there no racism in 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 England now? You coming to where are you going to? And they did it like that. They attacked the Pakistani and they attacked the German and everybody. So, and I was the last one. So before, when I, it was my turn, I said, um, I guess I don't have to explain why I'm here. Uh, they, they laugh. They laugh. That's it. And I said, and I want to tell you why I am coming to Australia to fight against racism. When I was a young kid, my grandfather told me the following story. He said, if you have a barrel of banana, and in that banana, in that barrel, you have one rotten banana, the whole barrel is in danger. The whole barrel is in danger. So wherever, as I told him, so wherever there's just one banana, rotten banana, I'm going to go there to suck it. So I come to Australia because According to the records I have, there is one rotten banana here. <laughs> and it's putting the whole barrel in danger. I say there's another rotten banana in my home, yes, in Costa Rica. But I go wherever there's a rotten banana because we have to get this out of it. And I think this is important because in, a world, in the world in which we live, we have to live together. Whether we like each other or not, we have to live together. Of course, if NASA is successful, we might, in a thousand years, have some other place to go. But for the time being, we are here in this planet together. And the first step in that scale is tolerance. We have to learn to tolerate each other. But tolerance is not enough. Normally, the powerful tolerates the weak. 
The guy is very strong and he says, well, I'm going to let you do what you want to do, okay? No, do, do it. That's tolerance. It's not enough. And it's only the first step in this case. The second step is to learn to respect each other. Respect means that you may not agree. You may not agree with the guy. But somehow you recognize that he has your right. He has the same right as you to do his own thing. And that that thing that he's doing has the same value as yours. Even if you do not, you do not agree with him. You don't impose your ideas. He does not impose his ideas on you. But you respect his, his uh, uh, option, whatever that it is. But you have to go further. You have to go beyond that. You have to get an understanding of the other guy. And that's the third step. You have to get to know each other. But to have an understanding, you have to study, you have to learn, you have to look into the other's culture. You have to share, you have to be able to sit down with the other, you have to be able to read about the other, you have to be able to research the other to find out exactly why he's doing what he's doing, how why do, does he think that way, and try. Then you can understand. You cannot understand. Then the fourth step is to appreciate, appreciation. But you cannot appreciate things that you don't know. You have to know about before you can appreciate whatever. So this is my dream. To create such a world. A world with respect. A world with mutual understanding and appreciation of the other. A world beyond racism, which was created by the... Europe, while they were expanding. So I hear universities, especially anthropologists, talking about um, some of them saying that, you know, people have always been racist. It's not true. That's not true. People have discriminated against each other for different reasons. Religious reasons, uh, ethnic reasons, national reasons. But it was the first time in the history of humanity that somebody decided to set up this doctrine. Doctrinarian racism, by which it classified human groups as races and said, this is the superior race, this is the human race. And all others go down in lower and lower scale until you get to the black race, which is at the bottom of the scale. That was an invention in the 17th century and 18th century. And they... Some of the most brilliant uh, brains of Europe work under development, and some from the U.S. also, but especially from, from Europe. Mm -hmm. Devising this form of diminishing, diminishing some people and <coughs> falsely raising others to justify colonialism. The idea was to justify, to justify why I have a right to go all the other over uh, the other side of the world and conquer these people because we are superior. We are the human beings, and these people are inferior. So I dream about since we know that the when it started, I'm pretty sure it will end. I might not be be around. 
I think I will not be around. When I look on the reactions we get against Obama, I'm pretty sure I won't be around. It's going to take much longer. Maybe your grandchildren will see. But as Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. It's a matter of raising up and looking far beyond. And I'm pretty sure that in the sweet by and by, and I hope it's not so far away, I would say in a generation or two, it will be possible for people to respect and to have mutual understanding and appreciation of the other. And then we'll have a world without racism. We know it started, and in the, according to the laws of this universe, everything that starts ends. So let's look in that direction and remain firm. When Mandela was fighting for liberty in his country, and he proposed Africa for all Africans, he almost loses life almost lose his position because what they want that they expected him to propose is to shoot all the white people and throw them right into the sea when he said africa for all africans he was in he was including these white africans that had oppressed these people and it was a hard time for his colleagues to understand why he was doing such a proposition. <coughs> but he said, Africa for all Africans, and he won. There are still problems in Africa, of course. <laughs> problems everywhere we go, of course. But without that idea, he would not have gotten what he'd gotten so far as he went. And the same thing with Martin Luther King, when he said, I have a dream. I have a dream. And so if I have a dream for a world without racism, in which the children of this enslaved can sit down with the children of the enslavers, then I can all people of goodwill can come into the folk and fight for that ideal situation, which I am pretty sure sooner or later will come. At least that is my optimistic view of the room you have, uh, the human species. And I hope that um, you become, if you're not already, part of such a dream. Thank you.